Rugby on Off The Ball with Vodafone, official sponsors of the Irish rugby team. Team of us, everyone in. The OTB Podcast Network. Right, you're very welcome along to episode one of Keith Wood's State of the Union. Our guests this week are Stuart Barnes and Giles Morgan, who is a former head of sponsorship for HSBC. You're both very welcome and thanks very much for for joining us. Um, Keith, before we kind of ask the lads for their opinion, I want to set the table a little bit. This is kind of off the back of multiple conversations that we've been having over the years about the very difficult state that rugby, professional rugby in particular, has managed to back itself into. And with everything that's going on, um, the, the analogy that uh, David McWilliams always used about when the tide goes out, you get to see who's been swimming naked. And in many respects, rugby has been swimming in the nude for a couple of years and the tide is very much on its way out. So that's kind of setting the table for why we're having these conversations. Yeah, it is. I think we were going to have this a couple of years ago, but sometimes you just you need the time for reflection. And when there's no live sport on, um, this is a time to, to, I think, to ask as many questions as you possibly can to see. We're a very young professional sport. So rugby went professional 25 years ago. Um, uh, it's still a baby and it's come a huge way in that period of time. And it's become... Uh, an awful lot of things that we thought it wouldn't. Uh, most of those are very, very good. Some of them are not so good. And uh, I think with, with COVID at the present moment in time, um, and we're, we're going to talk about finances of, of the game, we're going to talk about different issues within the game, but we're not going to talk about them in relation to this particular um, uh, area of lockdown because this is extraordinary in all sense. But we take this time of lockdown to go back and say, would you have done things a little bit differently? And if you would have, is it worth maybe looking at them now again to try and see if they could change again? Because um, we just see time after time after time that clubs and unions are under financial problems all the time. There are some problems with the actual physical game itself, but the running of the game is always on um, on tender hooks, so I think that's that's the nature of it. And I I delved into my phone or my black book to try and find guys that I've known over over a long period of time, people either I've worked with or respected, uh, or fought with, and maybe a little bit of all three of those, just to see different opinions that are out there. And like our idea is over the next six or eight weeks is to try and delve into something else, have a different opinion, and whether we can come to any. Uh, assumptions at the end and we know we don't have any monopoly on having any of the answers and we're not right but we want to try and make certain we can ask as many questions as we can the fundamental question is if you had a reset button what would you what what would the net result of that reset be well i think the the the, we want the game to be sustainable um we want it to be something that isn't in a panic every year uh, we'd like it to be in a situation where there isn't a chance of a big fight or a schism every year. Um, and we haven't fully sat down with that. And now bearing in mind, I think a huge amount of the game has gone unbelievably well. And um, But I still go back to uh, the day, I think it was Ken Reid, who was president of the IRFU, standing on the steps on, uh, on the plane as we were flying down to Johannesburg for the World Cup in 1995, saying that Ireland would never embrace professionalism. And the game was, went open and professional six weeks later. So we knew we weren't exactly set for it. And uh, we knew that the game was something was going to happen because of the huge commerciality that had started to come in on television rights. Um, 
so we flew at a million miles an hour into a, into a new professional sport. Um, I think at times we may have stepped away from the hundred years of of quality administration that has gone on beforehand, and I think we need to have some sort of a reset in that. Okay, well, this is a good chance to bring the lads in. Your, your mics are both on, on mute there, so maybe just, uh, yeah. Charles, if I can start with you, because I'm, I'm very interested in what the business world makes of what it's like to deal with the rugby world at the moment. Um, what, what were the rugby unions and the rugby organisations like to deal with from a business perspective? Well, I think the problem with nearly every sport um, that I've ever dealt with as a, as a sponsor, I don't have any uh, bragging rights as a former player of anything, so I can only say it is a boring suit, um, is that sports historically was set up in an amateur era and then became professional, which means most sports are fractured and factionalised and you have people who are seeking to serve their own needs rather than necessarily the holistic approach. If you were inventing sports from scratch, you wouldn't start with where most sports are structured now. And that's probably where the problem is. And what Woody mentioned earlier is that professionalism happened very fast. And I'm not even sure rugby exactly knew what it wanted to be in a commercial world. So it's been playing catch up ever since. So I would say, <clears throat> to answer your question, working with the rugby fraternity has been uh, a joy for me over a 30-year career because I understand the game and I understand the people involved and it's a great sport to be involved with. But commercially it's had its challenges and it's been very fractured and as you're now seeing big money coming in through private equity and people who are seeking to make it a profit, it, it has confused the game yet further. And what I'm hoping, and I suspect most sports administrators are hoping, is that this period of this unfortunate global pandemic is that there is a reset where people can establish who they want to be, what they want to be, and find a way of doing it in a sustainable way. Yeah. Stuart, I don't know if you can hear us okay there. Um, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm coming in and out all the time. I don't understand why I've been trying to fix this Bluetooth, but I'm hearing most of it. I played it a bit with Giles, but I've got the general gist, yeah. The, the reset button, if we had a magic reset button, what would come out the other side of, of professional rugby? How would well, it look? Well, that's what I need here at the moment. Magic reset button. It was interesting what Keith said about the game was driven professional in a shock in a six-week spell in 95. And I think if you look back at it now, I think what happened, it was, it was driven so far and so fast by 100% commercial interests. Commercial interest uh, of, 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 of Murdoch really drove rugby, and rugby was stunned. Ireland changed, they went professional in six weeks. England didn't have a clue. Uh, the manager put their head in the sand. I think if you could put the change of the reset button, I think you would have to have a balance. Now, I've always been a fairly radical person, in my opinions. And when it went professional, I thought it was a wonderful thing, the game. I thought... People like me who had been up at six in the morning would go training lunchtime, would train to uh, 10 o'clock, four days a week. You'd get recompensed. It would be wonderful. But the balance of, of decision-making on where this game was going between the game, rugby union, and between the commercial imperative, uh, we, we didn't find a halfway house. We went out on the far end, the far right, if you like, of the commercial side, and players didn't mind because we had untold wealth you know people like Keith and I never thought we'd get anything it was just it was fantastic from a playing point of view but I think the 
the shape of, of the deal and has, has impacted upon rugby and it has been always the game has always lagged behind the profit motive and I think that is the major problem of the game and because of that when this pandemic came because we didn't have a sensible balance between what the game needed and what profit wanted we found ourselves torn apart almost that's interesting Stuart um, I was trying to look at the different models that happen within sport and um, there isn't anyone that I would look out and say that's perfect for what rugby union needs yeah. but there are elements that are almost in control of their own their own competition so if you look at NFL which has a very structured season a limited uh, regular season and then playoffs at the end of it now there is no international component to it but they do have a big structure with it but that is done in entirely for owners and for for big finance at the very end of it and yet that level of control for me seems to be a very good situation if it was being run for part of the game as almost for the betterment of the game so when i look at the very start going back to 95 96 the, the there were three outliers um in in the game one were the japanese clubs that were very set up along that corporate commercial idea so they're and they're very different and very self-secure and self-funding in their own way but the english and the french clubs were immediately at loggerheads with their unions and so there seemed to be an argument over the use of who owns the player and the primacy of the contract and that seemed to be the most difficult element under which to think of for me when i look at the reset is there a chance or an opportunity for the rfu and the premier clubs because some of those are likely to go out of existence under the present structure is there an opportunity for those to lead world rug or lead professional rugby together in england is that possible and does that change the whole global landscape well it changes the whole global landscape it happens of course because well going into the pandemic uh england was probably the most powerful economic force in this tournament um the problem and it is a problem before you address the possibilities is that the rfu's failure to deal with this in day one enabled um a bunch of businessmen who had an eye on rugby and an eye on profit to take control of the clubs and there has been a simmering war between uh, club and country that has gone on since 1995 in england and i cannot see any way in which uh the club owners will hand over their priceless commodities i mean in the players they talk about player safety and player welfare but the players are the pawns in this game and right now the clubs have them and interestingly keith i think the only way you would get them back is if the risk was taken somewhat out of the owner's hands but that would mean what you said about the nfl it's really interesting because in terms of profit it, it, it's an unbelievably sort of hardcore viral capitalism yet in terms of the organization there's something socialist about it because they're all in it together so basically they look after each other other than sort of uh in 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 terms of selling various products but the marketing of the game the television of the game every all the profit is is as you say a collective and i think unless 
union goes collective in England with its clubs, there's no possible way that you will have um, club and country agreeing. The, the weaker clubs might say, we can see a way out of this, we'll do a deal with you. But you've got clubs like Bristol where Steve Lansdowne is an incredibly wealthy man and they're not, you know, he's pumped a lot of money into this game in a very short term of uh, time. He's not going to say, we'll hand over. Bruce Craig down the road where I live here in Bath has long been viewed as thinking, I came into this game to run Bath, they're my club, not handed it over. It is still very difficult. I, I accept and I hope that something good to come out of where we are now with coronavirus is that we're going to be forced into acting together. Um, but it's going to take a vice-like grip to pull club and country together right now. The, the NFL is always a, a great example, I think, to bring up. But it, it's essentially a monopoly. And, and they all work together as a cabal to keep new entrants out. They, I mean, they've, they've crushed new entrants in the past. And what they do is they've done a deal with the players. And there's, there's a power that the players have that I think that they haven't fully recognized in all this. The players should say that we're only going to play a certain amount of games every year. And then the unions and the clubs would have to fight out how often those players represented both of them. That would be one way of doing this. We're going to play 20 games a year because that's all our bodies can take, or 22 games a year, and, uh, and, and begin negotiations that way and, and force the clubs to say, well, we'll pay 40% or 50% of your salary and the, uh, the international team can play the rest, unless there's some kind of buyout from the unions in England to the problem, buy a portion problem, of the clubs. Yeah, the problem there is that, that we are comparing an unlike with a like. And rugby's big problem is it thinks it is a major player. It's not football. It's not a global game. It doesn't have the financial clout of American football. And so the problem is, I, I, I by the way, think the players have been um, given a very hard time in this. But you look at their salaries now and you look at the input of finance that comes into the game that reflects the position of the game on the global entertainment stage. And the players, if they say we want to play less, we're going to play 20 games, we're going to be a country fit for a club, and their income will come down. Because I, I don't, though I believe that less is more, and I think fewer games will make them better players, and it will make, I hate the word, but the product something better. I just don't think rugby has the commercial clout for its players to dictate how many games they will play. Well, and I, and, and I would agree, Stuart, with that. I think, it's, I think there's a great irony in the land of the free that um, NFL, that they have the draft system, which is pure genius in terms of keeping the collective going. And I also think that, that rugby's major problem, you've just put your finger on it, that it was never ready to go global and it's never been a global game. Sevens has got the best chance of going global, but that's a very different game from 15s and the two need to be separated out. And I have a little... You know, I have an experience of both sides commercially and seen it both. And the trouble is, it's almost like rugby has an identity crisis. It thinks it's something it's not, and it doesn't know who it wants to be. Mm. And then you get the wrong type of investment coming in, which is not necessarily for the good of the game. And you get to this point, which we've... I mean, rugby's been sort of going headlong towards this brick wall for a while. And it actually requires, like so many things in the world right now, where there's going to be a kind of dead still moment which we're in for everybody to reevaluate because if the game 
it's very interesting with World Rugby and obviously their re-elections. What does it want to be? Because at the moment, I don't think anybody has a clear mandate of what it wants to be. I, I think we're finding a, an almost an uncomfortable level of agreement, uh, which which is unusual from very different people. But yes. uh, like I had, I'd looked at the World Rugby elections, and uh, I know Bill Beaumont pretty well. I know Gus Pichot very well. Uh, listening to what they were saying, and actually, the, there wasn't a huge amount of difference between their their viewpoint. Um, one just happened to be. 25 years younger than the other that seemed to be an awful lot of what it was and everybody presumed that things would change an awful lot with with a younger guy taking on the on the mantle um for me i have a fear always when we talk about the global game that we want to make rugby global 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 bigger we want to go everywhere we want to be in every country isn't it brilliant we have another 10 countries now are part of it um there's a joy in sport, in different sports. So in Ireland, there's a huge joy in, in uh, the ubiquity of GAA in every village. Uh, there's a Gaelic football team or a hurling team. Um, and it's almost generational. And it fits into that generational idea that that happens. And it's part and parcel of everywhere. Uh, for rugby to try and go into every village, for me, is a struggle. Because rugby is incredibly complex, physical and dangerous sport. But Keith, don't so, you also think that there's a sort of imperialistic, assumptive arrogance that everybody wants uh, rugby union in every country around the world? I agree with you. I think yeah. that there are very sports, very few sports that can claim to be global and very few that could become global. They tend to be the simplest ones, like athletics, like football, because they're fundamentally simple to understand. Mm. I'm not sure. We've all grown up. You guys were, were great players. I played my sort of lousy level, but I'm still a 15-a-side rugby player and it's my game. I love it. Yeah. But try and explain it. Take kids to a game of 15-a-side, particularly a, a three-all in the wind and rain. Ain't easy. In a way that basketball actually is very easy to take kids. It's, it's like tennis. The ball goes up and down. Do I think 15-a-side is a better game philosophically? 100%. But I agree. I think the biggest error that World Rugby made, and I know it was all about the Olympics and the Sevens, but again, I never think they differentiated properly between the two, not codes, but you take my point, is when they rebranded to be World Rugby, because it took them down a, a road where they had to be their own brand. When actually the International Rugby Board, okay, it's not a very snappy title, but at least it wasn't trying to be global. It was just representative of the countries who played. And I think this world rugby where I hear press release after press release, I probably wrote a few myself about the globality of the game and going to every corner. It's, it's a nonsense. It can't happen. It won't happen. Charles, I, I just, Bill Beaumont, when he got elected uh, on Sunday, I looked at something called his press conference and he said, we must make this great sport. And again, there is this imperial thing of it. This great sport of ours even better. Fine. We all agree with that simpler that makes me worry because there's a complexity and a depth to the game safer we all agree with that and more accessible so this whole thing about more is simpler more accessible why it you know do we want to go to every country in the world and have 20 players playing it so we could come up with a press release which god knows we would saying under world rugby every country in the world now plays it it really doesn't matter. It has to maintain a depth and it has to maintain a magic. Just by spreading the game with the odd bit of sevens here or there or the odd 15s team does not achieve anything. Less 
does become, uh, sorry, more becomes less then. And I think we, we have it wrong. We shouldn't be worried about simplicity. We should actually avoid accessibility. For, for 20 years, I have been writing stuff since I hung my boots up about why are we obsessed, and I think I've had a chat with Keith on this, why are we so obsessed with the American market? We're driven by a blind profit. Rugby can make money, but it seems to want to make millions, billions of bucks, and it sees America and the Asian market, but Bill is always quoting the Asian market all the time. He would give away the game to grow it in areas where we would have to simplify it and essentially change it from what it has been for 120 years. And I, I've gone almost 360 degrees from being a rugby radical when I played to being what sounds like an old fart because I don't think the game needs to change. I don't want rugby union to be rugby league. I have nothing against rugby league, but I think rugby union has so much complexity and intellectual side to it. It's a far better game. And the reason I led HSBC into as you know, we did a, a, Lions, a couple of Lions tours, and that's the 15s, the, the pinnacle of the tradition, and they were wonderful sponsorships. But the reason I led the HSBC 7s programme was I felt very strongly that this was the one shot that rugby had to go more international, more global, because the game is terribly easy to understand. And kids, it's, it's seven aside, but it's touch, it's tag, it's girls and boys, it's participation. And yes, I can see sevens being played in schools in India and China, but what I've felt, and I've been disappointed in a sort of, but move on Giles, it's okay, life keeps going, is that I don't think that sevens has um, fully embraced the Olympic piece did. It, you know, to go onto the Olympic stage is extraordinary. And that's because everyone's tried to blend sevens and 15s together. They're totally different. And the two can coexist a bit like test match cricket and 2020 cricket. I love the, the longer form of both games, right? But if I'm going to take the game into new markets, I'm not taking 15 asides ever. It's interesting on that, Giles. I mean, and I know we've had some of this discussion in the past. Rugby sevens is one of the great participation sports, right? It, like it's incredible to play if you're, if you're a young kid and you're fit and you're fast and you've got some decent skills. It's not as physical. It's, uh, it's a very different, it's a short form. It's over in a period of time. It fits with business in a brilliant way for networking. It isn't sitting down for 80 minutes. There's an awful lot of movement. You can have a bit of louder noise in it. It is something to be able to market to places that are, that are not particularly used to it. It is simple. It is the joy actually of football when you watch it globally is every kid can kick a ball. Every, everybody could nearly um, coach it. Everybody could nearly ref it. Now, as it gets further up, it becomes more difficult, but the actual basis of the game is purely, purely simple. Um, for me, rugby is not simple. It's complex. I know it, because when you sit in a stand and everybody sees that there may be seven or eight in, in, infringements at every single ruck, and each person who sees one of them is right. So it's, it's how, is that, how does that fit into the spirit of the game and the flow of it? At times, we've been kind of struggling to make it black and white so that we make it more simple. I think it's added to more confusion in terms of it. But yet there is still a joy to that level of, of complexity. But the other side, I would say to it, in trying to spread a game of, of such complexity is that 
injury and the risk to injury becomes very high. You need the coaches to be incredibly well-skilled, but also to have played it, to know the nuance, understand the nuance. You need the referees to have played it, to know and understand the nuance. And it becomes incredibly physical, incredibly quickly. And I think that is in the urge to fill every corner of the world with rugby. I think we don't quite get there at all. I think we have a risk to that level. Can I ask a question then of, um, and, and maybe Stuart, I might, I might come to you on this one. Um, the, the Pro 14 has obviously embraced the idea of having clubs from South Africa play. And there's a league that fulfills a function with um, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and the two South African teams and the Italian teams. It seems like we tried to spread the gospel of the Pro 14 to, to certain areas. And it seems like the, the premiership in, in England hasn't quite been successful in terms of making the clubs standalone businesses that would have made profit without the CBC money last year, for example. So even taking the, the kind of the bones of your argument about the global game, has the same thing happened in a way where we've tried to expand the club game too quickly? in these islands and is that resulting in the same thing where actually that is unsustainable too well there's no doubt at all i mean the pro 14 has has grown because of its economic needs um and the south african uh input is, is marginal to the point of pointless because rugby also if if you watch a game of rugby on television and this is where the money's coming from and it's the television deal you need not just a good game of rugby you need an atmosphere because you can watch something that is of reasonable quality and if not many people are there you'll find it very hard to get interested where the english game has done quite well is um because it it's local it's like football there's local rivalries everywhere there's always atmosphere and atmosphere can mask inadequacy and i think that's why as a longer term project france again france has this fantastic ability to have an all front, a southwest derby, to have a Parisian game. And I think in France, it works. In England, it has the potential to work. But in Pro 14, it is stretching and getting weaker and weaker. For, for me, Pro 14, I, I don't like it as a competition. Um, I've never quite understood, and I, I do understand because of. Uh, Italy being in the Six Nations, but the need to put Italian sides with no history, no sense of rivalry into the midst of a Celtic competition. Uh, and for me, the comfort of, and the South African teams for me, I think are an absolute waste of time. And I think in terms of player welfare, deciding that in the middle of your season, and especially for international players, to suddenly have to pop down and play a game at the high veld, or, you know, or to play games, to, you know, it's just, it's just, it, for me, it isn't particularly right. Um, I've always been a fan to try and go on that sense of rivalry. So for me, I'm still looking for change. I would love to have a British and Irish league because I think the sense of rivalry that we see in the Six Nations can be mirrored at a club game um, with Leicester and Leinster or Munster, you know the crowds that are going to turn up to those sort of things. Because of actually the Heineken Cup, what it did show uh, over the years was that there is a huge appetite for that battle and that contest and those inbuilt rivalries that happen over the year. And yet that is a market that could be done properly, but it would have to be done in a fair fashion 
where pretty much every team will get the same amount of money. Um, if you had 10 teams from England, there'd be 10 times the same amount of money. So the Scottish teams would only get two units, the English would get 10 units. That would be the way it would work. But there has to be something that fits a little bit better, especially on the back of COVID, as to whether there's going to be a huge amount of travel or not travel, or where you want to be going to the other side of the world all the time to do different things, whether the closer proximity, we can make that into something that unifies it even a bit more. But I think if you look at the history of sport, and Ed Smith, the, the writer, now England cricket selector, has done, he, he writes reams great of writer. Books, sort of great writer on, on the history of sport. And at every point in the last 180 years, sort of since the Victorian playing fields of the public school, there have been punctuated moments where invention or circumstances affected where sport goes. So the telegram pushed racing forward, then radio, then television, jet travel opened up sport in a way that we've never seen before. The internet, digitization, all of these things have happened which have pushed sport further and further into these sort of vast tendrils of geography. And what we've got now happening, and we don't know what the future looks like, but it probably is a future with less travel because of cost and fear and quarantine, et cetera, et cetera, is that this sense of, well, the sky's the limit, we can go anywhere, will have to reduce, and to your point, in rugby, I, I hadn't thought about it until we talked about it, um, Keith, is that the, the, the concept of a British and Irish league where, and I really like your comments, Stuart, about um, atmosphere can, can mask a certain inadequacy. What we want is a great event with a good battle. And if there's a sublime rugby union as part of the, the experience, fantastic. But this constant need to expand which is driven by sponsor and media, has, it's almost inexorable because that's what human beings do. Now we've got a, a moment in time where expediency will see there will be less sponsorship in the game because the commercial profits are going to be redu reduced in the corporate sector. Media is going to be different. Travel is going to be different. And it may be going back to a more basic model, as you talked about, is actually a really strong future for rugby. I think also that I, I don't like the talk of sportsmen being and sportswomen being role models. I believe that they do their job, they do their thing, and they do it well. And that's the focus. But I think here we've got a chance for the sport of rugby. Instead of just talking about how great sport being better, blah, 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 we could actually become a role model because we haven't addressed, and I'm a great believer, I'm a, a long felt this way, I think... We're in a climate crisis. And the seven aside, we are jetting all over the world. We've got 10 tournaments. We are crisscrossing the planet nonstop. It's a terrible example. Um, and, and I've been thinking about that. I'm thinking if sevens is to sustain as a great sport, it has to play in sort of a European region, an Asian region. It can't just keep playing back and forth. Super rugby uh, has the same problem. It travels too far. The rugby championship, New Zealand will play Argentina, will fly from Auckland to Buenos Aires and fly back. That is almost obscene and we have to cut back. And there's an opportunity. New Zealand is a rugby nation uh, and Woody's played there will know if they went back to their sort of um, Auckland playing Canterbury, the Waikato uh, against Otago, they'd have a magnificent tournament. Australia, it's failing dismally for them. All they're doing is clocking up more air miles. They need to strengthen Queensland and Sydney. Stop worrying about going to Victoria, where 
rules is so strong. Don't waste money in markets you will fail. Concentrate, refine what you have and be strong. And I think that applies to the Southern Hemisphere and I think it applies to our hemisphere. It's what Giles just said. Let's come back to what we can do. Let's pack crowds in. You know, let's let's get back to a day when maybe Arthur playing Cardiff and it used to be 15,000 on a Tuesday night. Let's energise Welsh rugby again. And it will be energised not by playing uh, the Cheetahs with two Welsh supporters flying to Bloemfontein. It'll be hugely energised by travelling one millionth of the distance across the Seven Bridge to Bath. That's what could get this game going again. Even when you start talking about Australia, um, Barnsley, my, one of my favourite sporting occasions is not rugby union. It's rugby league, the state of origin. Yeah. Yes. It's you go back and play from where you're from. And it's, it's uh, New, Zealand, or, uh, New South Wales against Queensland. It is, it is the most conservative, conservative uh, structure of all time. And it's an unbelievable success. It is just phenomenal. And... And it is a rivalry. And actually, so I was there for uh, on a, an Irish tour years ago, and I couldn't get over the excitement that was going with it. And I got caught up in it because of rivalry. And rivalries don't happen um, because of a plucked team and a new team that makes something happen. It happens because of history. Mm. And I do think that's one of the things that we've done. I, and I, I go back to it. I'm in huge support of the vast majority of what's happened in professional rugby. But we cannot get rid of the hundred years of rivalry that happened beforehand, and that's that well, becomes a really big element. And you, it's something you're both more aware of than I could ever be. But look at the Lions. The Lions is probably the most valuable commodity, and I mean that. God, I sound like a marketer. I'll stop that. But but in terms of what it means to be a Lions supporter, let alone a Lion as as you both are, is something that is a, built on history and. Some people talk it as anachronistic. I don't think it is anachronistic. I think it's the foundation of the game and needs to be reminded that that is what matters most of all for rugby. I really do. Well, we very strangely, about... sorry, sorry Barnsley, very, very strangely when, when we talk about the lines as being anachronistic and, and something that doesn't fit into the game, the Lions is actually the lifeblood for the Southern Hemisphere nations. There is a type of global bartering system in terms of how money is moved around for, for matches that are played in Lansdowne or in Twickenham or in Cardiff or wherever, um, that the Lions is essential. So the Lions effectively bails out a lot of the Southern Hemisphere countries when they go down there. Now, I think that's a really good uh, idea in some respects, but also I think there needs to be a little bit more freedom and more uh, fairness in how some of the teams are played. So if I give an example and, and the reason to touch on it, if New Zealand come and play in Dublin, they don't get a share of the tickets. They don't get, they get their costs paid when they land. That's what happens. And so, uh, and that's justified by the fact that actually Ireland would put players into the lines every four years and they'll tour the Southern Hemisphere and that Southern Hemisphere would get a huge amount of money. It is a sense of bartering. Yet if New Zealand were coming up to play and, and got a fee for playing and maybe got a win bonus for playing and if Fiji did the same, there's an opportunity for those old established countries that don't have the resources that some of the countries have to have a little piece more of the pie. That's one of the elements I think that would need to have to change. 
I agree with that. The, the, other, the other tournament we haven't mentioned is the holiest of holies from a, a European perspective, which is the Six Nations. But I think we probably should call it the Five Nations because Italy's a wonderful spot. Travelling to Rome for a game is a great jolly. Uh, but the Five Nations has been sustained not by the excellence of the rugby, by any shape of the stretch of the imagination. And since this game has gone professional, we've had the main great rivalries have been initially New Zealand versus Australia, and now we're back to New Zealand versus South Africa. But what, the, what our wonderful tournament has is that tight tribal rivalry. You know, you don't go to Ireland, it's great afterwards, but by God, there's not a person in green who's going to wish you well beforehand. And that's as it should be. And Wales will play Ireland, Scotland will play England. And so often, you know, again, since I hung my boots up, I have watched many a Six Nations game. I've seen, you know, probably every England game and a lot more than that. And the quality of most of these games is often pretty poor. But fans go away and they're delighted or they're desolate because the result counts because it is not just about quality of it, it is about the occasion. And that gets back to what we're talking about with Pro 14 and about Italian teams in that tournament and, and South Africans. The occasion is everything. The occasion is everything. And sometimes I don't think broadcasters understand that themselves until it's too late. Charles, can I ask you a question about, you know, you've obviously presented in, in boardrooms and, and built um, sponsorship and plans and, and activation plans around your sponsorship. If you were to go in and say, we're actually going to focus on a sport that's going to get smaller in the coming years, and here's the rationale for doing that, would you still get the investments from your board that you require to do that? Well, the, the thing about sponsorship <clears throat> is sponsorship should be an answer to a business need, right? So for HSBC, something like Sevens was a perfect fit for an international company with sort of global hotspot cities around the world. But to, um, to Stuart's point, this, the, the planet has been bleeding for a long time and, and most we haven't really been paying much attention to it. And now we've had this COVID, one of the, if, if joy is the right word, but the, seeing the planet starting to heal itself is one of the things that people are talking about. The realization is the ozone layer is beginning to repair itself. I think that a lot of corporations, whilst they may be international conglomerates, are gonna be structured in a much more regional and domestic way because costs of being structured in a much more global way as they have been are going to be different. And therefore, there may well be businesses that say, well, we used to invest in global events, etc. We'll be going, actually, we're going to focus on the markets that matter and keep it more domestic. So it's a clumsy answer to say that if I were doing my old role at HSBC now or in the next six months as we come out of this crisis, I suspect that the HSBC business plan will be very different as every big international conglomerate is having to rethink. And as a result of it, sponsorship has to rethink because sponsorship should only be a reflection of the business. And therefore, I can see in the, in the past, I, HSBC never touched domestic rugby in the UK because it was always the world's local bank. It used to be the marketing platform behind it. I think you'll see HSBC UK being a much more domestic looking business going forward. And therefore, domestic sponsorships of golf, rugby, cricket, whatever it chooses to do, 
will be much more of interest. So I think rugby should play into its strength, which is what Keith was saying, which is the strength of rugby is its tradition, its heritage, the friendships, the spirit, all of those things, which are very positive vibes that boring corporations yearn to be involved with. <clears throat> I, I'm much more interested in a, in, a, in a modern rugby that goes back to its roots of, of how it was socialised. A Lions League essentially is is the solution. I think Keith, that you're suggesting here, I mean, the the branding would be perfect. It would help uh, tie in nicely with the the Lions every four years. It, we're what we're miles away from that happening. Is it a, is it a realistic outcome at the end of this? Do you think, or is the the hyper localization that the lads are talking about here going to mean that England protects the clubs, France protects the clubs, and the scenario that we have at the moment is essentially locked in? Well, yeah, it, it's an that's an interesting uh, point on that. France protect the clubs, England protect the clubs. The bulk of money in rugby works through international rugby. You know, it's eighty to ninety percent of all the money that comes in on it. It's so instead of having a club and a union fighting uh, over the same players um, uh, and dictating who has primacy and how when you can play. That needs to be done together. The professional part of rugby in England needs to have some coming together. It isn't about getting the RFU taking over the clubs. It, isn't, it is about helping some of the owners get back some of the money that they've put into it. But it is about trying to make certain you're not dragging players left, right and centre all the time. It is also about trying to have players in a club in England that qualify to play for England. And at the present moment in time, because of players playing for England and you're elongating the system, the squads have become an awful lot bigger and they're supplanted with uh, players from the Southern Hemisphere to try and make certain that when the English players are gone away that they can actually make gains, those clubs can make gains. That's an issue. That just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The season is still far too long to be trying to be playing for 46 or 47 weeks of a year um, because you have a whole variety of different competitions actually doesn't make any sense in terms of longevity or viability or sustainability of the players. But okay, what we've got here, the real problem is uh, the RFU, England, are not trying to protect their clubs. Clubs and country are not a partnership. They're the problem. And what Woody has just said there about too many games, because the clubs feel they have to play the games. They have to play the games to keep CVC, to keep BT happy. They want to play them and they want to play more and more. And, and the international game, it wants more than its slice of pie. And, and again, this goes back all the way to the start of this podcast when we talked about the game getting driven professionally very quickly. France and England are not part of the overall game because clubs they're the two countries great financial power but ones where the clubs dominate so we keep hearing every week you hear talk about the global league and until you can come up with a deal for the clubs that's not going to happen but there is not a willingness for this to happen unless ground is given to the clubs we've seen it with the lions the clubs are a new creation they are a financial creation and they are not part, they don't see themselves a part of any global solution. World rugby doesn't see them 
as part of the operation. Time and again, we'll, uh, the, the, the PRL, the English clubs, will say, we never hear a thing. No one in World Rugby ever speaks to us. And that's wrong. I can understand why World Rugby would, would rather that the English and French clubs did not exist. It would make their lives a whole lot easier, but they do exist. And again, it goes a bit to what we were talking about, the factionization, and you asked yeah, earlier about, you know, how is it to deal with, the, with, with sports? Well, most sports are very difficult to deal with as an outsider coming in because it, there's not a logic to it. And one of the sports that's interesting me in the last three or four years, what's very factional, all of the leaders of the various tours around the world in golf have come together in a way that you'll probably start seeing um, the tours um, becoming one, I would say, in the next five years. Because they realise, one, the game is under threat because whilst people play golf, it's, it's, not a growing, it's not a growing sport. And therefore, expediency says, well, what are we going to do about this? We're going to pull together for the good of our game. I don't think rugby's got there, but that is good. It just may be often after, war, after wars and after you know, great um, suffering, there is a sort of raising um, that then creates new shoots and new leaves. And maybe that that's what's going to happen, or I hope could happen for rugby, is that there's going to be sufferance. There's going to be a sense of some, some of, the, some of the, the, the clubs and the, the unions even are going to find financially they're in big trouble. And then maybe there's a day of reckoning, which is for the good of the game. It seems like we're getting there right, really very quickly. Just in, the, the figures that have come out over the last couple of days about how much money the RFU are going to lose this year, best case scenario and worst case scenario, there's not that much difference between best case and worst case scenario. And likewise, the, the IRFU are going to struggle as well with the absence of gain. So we might be hurtling towards that day of reckoning sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think there's a huge amount of, of some of those figures that have come out have been income. Um, um, they've said they're going to lose out on over 100 million in income. Well, they also won't have a huge amount of cost that goes within that. And I think you have to be careful when you, when you look at an awful lot of the figures. Um, but I do think that day, day of reckoning is coming now. And actually, Stuart, you mentioned the one word there um, because we do describe the French clubs and the English clubs as being outliers within world rugby. Um, for want of a better phrase, within the world of rugby. Um, uh, and it isn't about knocking them over, though some of them may go by the wayside because they're, in, in they're under huge financial pressure at the moment. But it's the word you mentioned was partnership. Like what's a way of bringing them in the fold where they get a benefit, but where the game of rugby benefits. And the last part that we didn't discuss at all, which could be a whole new program, will be a whole new program, is how does that impact on amateur rugby and domestic rugby? Because we're only talking at the very top level of it. But we remember the fact that we all started playing rugby because we loved it because we were kids and we thought it was a great game to, to, to play and all the great attributes that come with it. And how does that fit within this model? And how is money taken aside out of the professional part of the game to make certain that that uh, amateur side of the game is able to grow significantly? Because you always need to try and build the numbers, but build the numbers in in a in a heightened fashion. And um, but the day of reckoning is coming very very close at the present moment in time. Because when you go down the list of priorities for governments um, coming out of COVID, yes, they will want to support sports because sports are very good for body and mind and all that sort of side. Will they want to support professional sports? Because that is there are other things that the money is going to be needed for. 
and uh, there's been huge supports put in place, especially in the UK. Um, it's how sustainable they are going forward and what's going to happen when that stops. So I think the day of reckoning, this is a perfect time to have this conversation. I think our culture is a crude one. We're obsessed with money. We're so obsessed that the only debate about where we are with COVID-19 and how we're coming out of it, or that the predominant one is the financial one that's involved in profit profitability. It hasn't crossed Bill Sweeney, chief executive of the RFU's mind, that the whole world six years from now is not going to be where it was six months ago. There are all sorts of reasons why this world is shrinking because our resources are finite. We still talk about the same old things. We're intellectually, imaginatively incapable of seeing that we can survive by being smaller. He said Twickenham's not going to go, the RFU's not going to go. So it gets back to what we said all the way to the front. Rugby isn't the world's biggest game. What is the crisis about it dropping back, about salaries being a bit smaller, about at a certain level players will have to be perhaps semi-professional? It isn't a crisis, except we can't even contemplate that at the moment. It could be an opportunity, but the only thing that is seen as success right now is the dollar bill. And, and, and what's interesting on that as well, and the thing that I take great comfort on, I suspect we all do, with no live sport going on pretty much anywhere in the world, and we're all sports fans and we all miss it, is that there is going to be a massive change in the landscape, I think, in every sense, from the commercials to everything else, which is, I hope, a reduction. I agree with you. But the exciting thing is that I think that every sport in the world should remember is that we, the fans, have not gone away. And we still want to be the fans of the sports we were before, but it may be on a reduced level, but we don't stop that passion. And therefore there is an opportunity, but it looks different. I think that's a, a great point to wrap up the first episode of Keith Woods State of the Union. My thanks to our guests this week, to Stuart Barnes and Giles Morgan. Really fascinating stuff, guys. Thanks a million. We've started a million conversations there. Uh, hopefully they lead to plenty more in the coming weeks too. Cheers. The OTB Podcast Network. Rugby on Off The Ball. With Vodafone, official sponsors of the Irish rugby team. Team of us. Everyone in.